having seen my family and the institution's part in constantly feeding the British press with lies, mistruths, mis disinformation, the only way that I can correct those mistruths is by writing something, <laughs> the truth, in one place. This week, Prince Harry's new memoir hit bookshelves and just as promised, it is a raw and unflinching account of growing up royal. Harry details violent encounters with his brother, arguments with his father, and he even raises the question of whether the monarchy should continue to exist. Well, welcome to this very special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. I'm Erin Vanderhoof. And I'm Katie Nichol. We are two reporters who've both covered the royal family extensively for Vanity Fair. And we're following the story of the future of the royal family here on Dynasty. So let's talk about, well, what everyone else is talking about, eh? <laughs> Prince Harry's book. Erin, I have to be honest, I devoured it. I read through the night because I couldn't put it down. I mean, what an extraordinary read. I've done this job for a pretty long time. I thought I knew Harry pretty well. But truly, this book has shocked me and shown me a very different side to Harry. Erin, I'm desperate to know, what did you think? So I had to listen to Harry read the 13-hour-long audiobook, and he does an amazing job. I loved hearing the stories about his time by the Okavango River and that part where he impishly has a drink with the Queen Mother, and the stories from his deployment to Afghanistan where he feels competent and truly needed for the first time were worth the price of admission alone. I've also become a lot more familiar than I ever wanted to be with, uh, what, what's Harry's word for it? Uh, his todger. Yes, Erin, I never thought that we would be discussing Prince Harry's penis on air. In fact, there's actually quite a few references to his private parts, which, as we now all know, got frostbitten on a trek to the North Pole. But jokes aside, the word I'd use about all of this is naked. Because he feels so naked. This book is so raw. We got to hear about Kate and Meghan's relationship, or rather the lack of it, and why you don't want to ask Kate Middleton if you can share her lip gloss. We got to learn new details about the infamous bridesmaid fitting dress and how Princess Charlotte was also in tears. But the thing that sticks out to me most was Harry's account of his relationship with Willie, as he calls his brother throughout. And what I think we all saw as a once-so-close relationship is something that we call Team Wales was, according to Harry, a bit of a farce, a construct of convenience. According to Harry, the brothers' relationship was mired by them being the heir and the spare. And Erin, let's not forget how important the word spare is in all of this. Wait, Katie, I have one question that I just really want to ask you. I think that this was actually the moment that was most surprising to me, which is that Harry says he didn't know that William had even proposed to Kate before it became public information. That, that to me was, wow, I had no idea. The idea that he didn't tell his brother, I just found that, well, like you say, Erin, one of those wow moments, truly shocking. I, I think Harry accounts for how surprising this all might seem to somebody who's watching from the outside in the book. I mean, I think for one, he keeps on saying that he wants to be closer to William and that he hopes that finding a stable partner, like getting married, will really help them all come together and be couple friends. And 
I think that he also kind of puts in things from the past that he understands that he might not have been the easiest to get along with. And I imagine that it's really not easy to get close to somebody who's clearly is traumatized, clearly is going through something as Harry was. And I, in this narrative of the relationship he's presenting, what I see is a person who's now looking back from 2022, where he has a brother he doesn't even text with, and going back in time and trying to piece together the clues, like I think a good memoir should always be, he's trying to understand the story himself. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I I think Harry paints a picture of of a pretty cool older brother. um, And I think a picture that most siblings will be able to relate to. I mean, people dismiss it as pettiness. But I suppose when you're a young boy and you're growing up and you're always treated as second best, whether that's getting the not so good room at Balmoral with the not so good view as your brother, um, whether you're taking all the flack from your brother, even when your brother's perhaps having one drink too many or getting up to no good at Club H, which, by the way, I did reveal in my book, Club H, Club Highgrove, was um, was one of the big stories in, in the William and Harry book that I wrote. And they did have a lot of fun there together. But you see, when that fun turned out to go a little too far, and when Harry got caught out by the newspapers for underage drinking... There was no mention of William in those stories. It was Harry, the one who was in the wrong. It was Harry who was taken to a drugs rehab centre when it was found out that he wasn't just drinking at Club H, that he was smoking marijuana as well. So it was always Harry copping the flack for William. And I think that absolutely did put a strain on their relationship. And I was told that it took someone from the palace taking William to Harriet Eaton to try and smooth things over after one particular row. So this idea of warring brothers, of brothers that fell out, of heated exchanges, of of a wrestle with their place in the hierarchy. Yes, to hear Harry spell it out, um, it was fascinating to read, but perhaps we weren't looking close enough for the clues in all the years that we were covering this story as it unraveled. Well, I I think like you said, you think you're looking at people who are involved in this team group quest together, but the stakes are the institution. But then after they're done, they can take off the costumes and go and just hang out and do their jobs. But I think it's not until reading about the fight last week when it leaked and then this time that I kind of understood exactly how much these roles that they have are their lives And when they come into conflict over the roles, they're coming into conflict over their lives, too. I think I never truly understood that until right now. We'll have more in just a moment. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Harry has now thrown a grenade into the institution But I think part of the sense is that he is really trying to both explain his hurt, but also attack his brother. But his brother and the institution are one in the same now, which gets us into 
a whole a whole mess that is tearing the family apart. So externally, the palace is not responding at all. But Katie, you've got some reporting on how the palace is responding inside. So what do you think? The palace's mantra is never complain, never explain. Harry's picked this apart in numerous interviews and, and in the book itself. The palace's view is that they couldn't possibly respond to every single claim and allegation. And that actually, by responding on any level, they were only going to fuel this narrative. And I think the feeling within the palace is that eventually this narrative will burn out. At some point, Harry is going to run out of things to say. That moment will come. He cannot keep spinning and talking about the same stories. So it's still no comment. And I have to say, I, I think in this situation, the palace has been right. I think maintaining a, a silence and has been the right way to go about it because they are not further fueling any oxygen into this narrative. And I think we have to remember in all of this, this is Harry's prose, this is Harry's story, and this is just one side of the story. But at the moment, the palace aren't going to be getting involved in terms of telling the other side. And I think you bring up something interesting, which is that we haven't seen the royal family openly reject anything. And they are trying, they, you know, the palace strategy is that they're trying to get the fuel to the fire to go down. But obviously, you know, the palace is an institution. You know, it can't, it, it doesn't have one brain. It's got a lot of different people doing things. And there was a pretty wild rebuttal that came out this week that was con- attributed to sources close to the royal family uh, in The Independent this week. A source close to the royal family said that Charles, Camilla, and Prince William thought that Harry had been, quote, effectively kidnapped by psychotherapy and Meghan. And That is a pretty loaded accusation. And to be clear, the palace has not come out openly to confirm the story, but the source in the story says that the situation has made it hard for the royal family to reach out to Harry to reconcile because they don't trust that any correspondence with him will remain private. So in the book, Harry said that William thought he was being brainwashed by therapy. And I think to hear anybody talk about the cult of psychotherapy, like in America at least, I just laughed. And so did Stephen Colbert when he asked Harry about it. I mean, this was back in 1997, right? Therapy wasn't really a, a conversation that was had, um, not, a, not within my family and not really within British culture at all. I don't know how you guys were doing in 1997, but it wasn't, it wasn't really a regular thing. Um, but, you know, today, in one of today's newspapers, apparently I'm trapped in the cult of psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> how is it in the cult? Is it nice? Yeah, it's, it's warm, it's cozy. Um, Good. Now, the idea that there's a cult of psychotherapy is not a thing here. Like, maybe it's my American individualism or my Oprah-addled childhood, but I don't think that distancing yourself from relatives you argue with a lot, especially if, you know, there's something who might have attempted to solve an emotional issue with violence. Like in America, that's not controversial at all. And it's not kidnapping. No. And I think in terms of this whole idea of sourcing and commenting from the palace, you're not going to get them commenting on stories like this. A newspaper is always going to keep its sources independent. And, you you know, there are lots of reports with, with sources flying around all over the place. This is one of Harry's biggest gripes, isn't it, Erin? That the palace is a leaky machine, that it's deliberately briefed and leaked against him. You know, I think there's a difference between briefings and and, and leaking material and then sort of planting of negative stories. Those are two fundamental different things. And I have to say that in all the time that I've been doing this, and and particularly this period that we're talking about, the division of, of the brothers, the establishment of these two rival camps, 
it wasn't the case that the palace were leaking negative stories about Harry and Meghan. I went to them with certain stories that, you know, didn't cast them in a particularly good light. And I would always get no comment. Harry just seems fixated on this idea of, of planting and, and negative briefings that, you know, the press were out to get him, the press were out to get Meghan, and that, you know, his own family and his own communications officers were actively briefing against him. And I don't believe that that was the case. I think that you can tell that Harry misses his family a lot as people, but he is not willing to return to a system that's like that. And he won't return to the way things used to be just for his family's acceptance. And so that makes sense to me. Like, if he were my friend and this was happening to him, I wouldn't really encourage that. So I think that that's, you know, that's the status quo with the relationship of the family. Well, I think you raised two good points. Um, one is I I had exactly the same reading. To me, it's this is he says he's happy. He's happier than he's ever been. He's living the life. And I've, and I've no doubt he loves America. You know, it's a brilliant place to live and he's having a, a wild, <laughs> wonderful time. But there is a sadness and you can see that sadness. You can see that sadness when he talks about his family and he wants a reconciliation. And and yet, you know, everything that he has done, everything that he has said has pushed that chance for reconciliation so far into the long grass. There's no chance of it happening anytime soon because I don't know about you, Erin, but I came away from this thinking, well, Harry's kind of painted a picture of his brother as a bit of a bully. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's... What did he say to Anderson Cooper? That I think it was that things couldn't possibly get any worse than they mm. were <laughs> in mm. the, in terms of their relationship. Like, I think that in some way, he's doing this, one, to take some ownership of a story, two, to get some, you know, opportunity to attack the British media. But I think he really is trying to hold up a mirror to the family just of what it was like for him to be a part of it. Erin, I think there's one major omission in your summary of why he might have chosen to do the book, and that is ka-ching, the oh, money yes. in the bank. Okay, <laughs> There's a lot of money on the table here, a lot of money. And I think you're right. He got to the point where he could see a reconciliation wasn't going to happen. He has that moment with his father and his brother where they are so on different pages. There is no sense of coming together anytime soon. And I think a bit of that reckless Harry, and there is a reckless Harry in in, in all the other parts of Harry, just thought, okay, well, I'm going to do this. I am going to blow the lid on this and hold the mirror up so you can see what you've done. Because I think Harry takes very little accountability in all of it. He puts the blame on everyone else. He doesn't seem to want to accept any fault in any of this. And I, I have a bit of a problem with that. I don't think that's fair. I think, I mean, so think about it like this. He is telling a story about his own experience. So it's like he's the person making the decisions in this whole story. He is a person who has made decisions to make himself free from the things that he, that were bothering him. And I think that that, in that way, that's his, like, really taking responsibility. So now he's trying to understand why it was in the past, he didn't feel like he had that option. Like, I think that that's kind of a joke, you know, it's like, just hit the bricks. Like, if you don't like what you're doing, don't do it. Uh, and and why Harry never did that, I think, is kind of the point of this book. He's like trying to explain to us why he didn't do that. Yeah, but if you don't like if you don't like the way it's panning out in the mix, that's fine. I mean, I I I think most people would say they have no problem with Prince Harry leaving the royal family. I think after reading that book, a lot of people will say, "Ha, ah, I can completely understand why he did want to leave." Harry talks about wanting his family back, but he knows better than anyone else that it's not just 
any family. It is the royal family. It is an institution. It is a hierarchy. This, it, this is a hierarchy that runs through his DNA. He knows how it works and, and he has chosen to leave. I think a lot of people have had a problem with how he left. And I think with what he's doing now, I mean, I suppose some might say he's left. He's got his beautiful wife, his beautiful children, his wonderful home in Montecito. Um, couldn't he have done an autobiography, which, as you and I have said, there is so much interesting detail in there that, for me, the best stories are the minutiae. It, it's the little details little through, littered throughout. It just seems to reduce it to tittle-tattle by going over yet again that story about the bridesmaid's dress. I mean, there is, I think there is a sense that he has to now pick himself up and move on from this narrative because... He wants to take on the British media. He wants to take on the institution. He wants to take on the family. And he wants to do all of this from the sort of coziness of, of his Montecito mansion. And you just wonder, well, actually, Harry, can you? Is it going to be worth it? And I think that's the big question in all of this, that, that he will have to ask himself. Well, so I think that that actually is a great segue into, I think, the one thing that is still hovering over all of this which is, you know, Harry Harry was trying to, with this book, step past the British media. And sure, they got the leaks, but I think meaningfully he wrote a book for a very different audience than the book that he might have wanted to try, that he might have been pushed to write or tried to write if he was still a member of the palace. And I think that his anger at the British media is partially aimed at trying to get it to change. So you, I think you seem a little skeptical that he'll be able to get it to change. But I do think that there are some signs that some people are a little disturbed, at least by some of the things that Harry has talked about. So what do you think? No, I think, listen, there are disturbing things that he talks about. I mean, he he doesn't seem to make a clear distinction between the paparazzi and the British media. He sort of throws them all into the into the same pit together. But when you read about him being chased by the paparazzi, by him not having a, being able to have a private moment at a friend's wedding because he can hear the clicking in the bush of a of a paparazzi, and he talks about two in particular, he calls them Tweedledum and Tweedledumer, which made me chuckle. Um, but he, you know, sort of joking about it aside, he talks about being physically hit by them with their cameras to get a reaction. I mean, that is appalling. It is inexcusable and it's indefensible. But he also seems to forget that for, for a very long time, um, the, the British press made an agreement with the palace not to publish paparazzi pictures of him, to let both of the princes grow up and have some sort of a semblance of a normal life. And thinking to more recent times, I can tell you, Erin, the British media, the British press didn't publish one paparazzi picture of Archie they just didn't go there. I mean, frankly, I think the one thing we can deduce from this is that the British press are responsible for everything, everything that possibly went wrong in his life. I mean, that that is that is clearly Harry's narrative. But I think he now finds himself in a tricky position with the tabloids. And I don't mean the British tabloids. I mean the American press now, because while we have very different privacy laws over here in Britain to, to what you have in America, Harry has spectacularly invaded his own privacy, not just with the book, but with the Netflix series as well. He has brought the cameras in. He has spilled the most intimate details of, of his life and his family's life and their private conversations, by the way, all over the book. But you do wonder now what case Harry is going to have 
for privacy. And living in California, where he does with very different rules, where paps are just a part of the culture, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But he got to make that choice. He got to make the choice to tell the story about uh, his frost nip. And he got, <laughs> and I think that to me, like you can tell that for him, the choice is what makes the difference. And I think that that will go, I think it'll serve him well in America because I think if you're willing to be selectively revealing, selectively embarrassing, and you have the charisma to back it up, he really does. Like he just, he did a great job. Oh, he job. does. He's, you, you saw that on Colbert. He is incredibly charismatic. Um, and, you know, he's a good, fun guy. He has every right to to tell his story. No one could take that away from him. That's that's that is his narrative, but I think he has crossed a line in detailing private conversations between him and his brother, between him and his father, at very intimate and personal moments. I mean, the funeral of his grandfather, and I just feel that in that a line has been crossed. So one of the things we haven't talked about yet is the central question of dynasty, um, really, like, how much damage to the monarchy has Harry done, if any? And what do you think about that, Katie? Well, I think if you look at the popularity polls, he hasn't done any damage to the monarchy. King Charles' popularity is, is, is really high at the moment. The Prince and Princess of Wales, you know, most popular royals. Um, and Prince Harry, well, he is in the negative rating. So the only person it's affected over here is Prince Harry. Erin, I don't know what the polls are saying in terms of Harry's popularity over in America. I'm really interested. Harry doesn't really matter enough to have polls taken about him. We don't really do that. Uh, it's just not really a thing well, what about the ro- What about the royal family? What are the, what are the poll, Erin, what are the polls saying about the royal family at the moment in America? We don't, I mean, we don't, we, I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to look at them, oh, okay. but I don't, I mean, I think that it's really important to remember that in our media, Harry is on Good Morning America. He comes in half an hour. It's not the first thing. It's, you know, it's, you know the, the, the usual things have to go forward first. And mm. on 60 Minutes, he had the first 30 minutes and then the second 30 minutes were about Hans Zimmer, you know? Like, he is one thing of many here. And I think that that makes him, I think that that's like the change he kind of saw. And, is, and isn't that so interesting, Aaron? Because over here, you look at the Daily Mail website and it was just wall-to-wall coverage. You know, I think we had sort of 17, 18, 19 pages in, in the tabloid press. So <laughs> I, see, I see think that is... in a love-hate relationship. Yeah, I think that is bad for the monarchy more than anything else, you know? But, but well, I'll it, say... I'll, it, it, yeah, go on. Oh, let me just say, I think that Harry, I think that the only danger to the monarchy that Harry has really brought up is I I think that there is a really, really trenchant critique of his life that comes up near the end of the book where he essentially says that the rules of the monarchy and the demands of his father and being tarred as a drug addict in the press— essentially made him dependent and unemployable. And like that to me, it's really, I think that to me just really broke my heart because I think he really has a point. And I think that if the, I think if the institution can't figure out how to deal with that for the next generation of kids, it, it's just going to be unforgivable. Well, I think that's a that's a really good point. No one would want the next generation to suffer in the way that Harry has clearly suffered. You see that suffering on the pages of his book. I mean, that is his story. And it's not a pretty picture for the royal family. And so I think 
when you look to the Cambridges and how they're raising their children away from the spotlight in pretty ordinary schools, in, in a regular cottage on the grounds of Windsor, having bucket and spade holidays and teaching them to sail um, on the broads in Norfolk. Actually, they are enjoying a childhood that William and Harry just didn't get to enjoy. And I think that's why William and Kate are channeling everything they can into into raising their children with that understanding of who they are as royals, but as ordinary children too. And of course, it does open up the question of the next pair, of Princess Charlotte. Um, and I'm sure that William and Kate have got that all worked out. But reading Spare, and if they do, I think at points it will be deeply uncomfortable for them. Well, I think it also raises just the question of the relationship to the family and the firm in general. You know, I think that that I think that there have been so many times when you and I have certain, you know, rules or regulations or things where we say like, well, they must tell them about these things. And it was chastening to realize that the the lines behind the scenes are really blurry, and I think that making those lines a little bit more clear with some open communication, I think, could be really helpful. Yeah, and I think, yes, I mean, and you wonder, had there been some more communication? Had Prince Harry actually been allowed to have that conversation with his grandmother, the Queen, when he and Meghan flew over from uh, from Canada to try and put some sort of a solution on the table? Perhaps the narrative would have followed a different course. And so... Every institution can improve itself. Every institution can learn from the past. But the palace has done it. They've done it before. They learned lessons from Diana. I suppose the big questions are, will they learn lessons from Harry's experience? Will they even read Spare? One thing is certain. Harry is holding up a mirror to the institution. He is asking it to question itself. I think he and Meghan never truly were able to reconcile their position within the hierarchy. I don't think it suited their narrative or their agenda. And I don't think he will change the institution overnight. But if there can be some reflection and anything learned from this in a positive way, let's hope that there can be some sort of familial reconciliation. And let's hope perhaps they do take away something from Spare. Possibly not everything, but something. Yeah, I think that what comes next for Harry and Meghan is now totally up to them. And it's like, I think that the palace was not a great place, at least the palace circa 2018, was not a great place for people like Harry and Meghan who who have that kind of ease and comfort of going on you know, late night TV. I think the palace wasn't really sure what to do with that, but now they've taken that into their own hands and they have said that they really want to do that. They want to use that to do good for their charities and I'm excited to see if that's something they're going to be able to do. Like, I think they've really, they've set themselves up well and so I think that what what comes next is really, you know, it's really going to be the, they're going to, it's going to put their ideals into, te- into action. Well, I think what comes next is absolutely fundamental because I think, you know, for all the headlines that it is generated, and as we said, it, you know, it, it's a beautifully written book, it's a poignant book, it's it's a moving book, but he has to move on from the past. It's interesting because he actually starts spare with a quote. I'll read it. The past is never dead. It's not even past. And the past is so much of spare, but I think there is a feeling that they have to move on from that. I'm excited to see what the next chapter is for the two of them, but I think we've heard enough about rifts. We've heard enough about the war of words and bridesmaids' dresses and and everything else. It is time to move on. And 
you know, the greatest challenge now is for the king on the eve of a coronation with all of these negative headlines. And Harry said something interesting in the Tom Bradby interview. He said that the royal family was about unity, and it absolutely is. And so as we approach the coronation, while Harry may not be able to change the institution that he has long railed against and has so much issue with as you see in spare you have to hope there can be a compromise somewhere because a compromise may lead to a reconciliation and a reconciliation is absolutely vital because you cannot have this alternative royal court operating in california it is damaging to the monarchy this isn't a constitutional crisis harry is a peripheral member of the royal family it's not going to change the monarchy in in any real sense and i don't think it's going to hugely damage the monarchy but moving forwards as we look to the coronation people want to see a united royal family and so the big question is of course will harry be there my understanding is that there is still an olive branch on the table from the king he wants both of his sons there we now know that royal dukes will not have to kneel before the king i think that will probably work to harry's favor will the sussexes take that olive branch they say that the ball is in the royal family's court i actually think it's in the sussexes court i think they will be invited to the coronation and i think where this narrative moves next is very much down to them the coronation is also slated to be on archie's birthday though so if they do not want to go they have a pretty good excuse already built in there is the fact that it's archie's birthday but don't forget they brought the children over for the jubilee celebrations and actually i think that was an example a really good example of how the sussexes were able to be there in a peripheral role where they didn't upstage any member of the royal family and actually it worked so no doubt there'll be lots going on behind the scenes in coming months and as harry said a lot can happen This has been special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. Dynasty is produced by Vanity Fair and Condé Nast Entertainment. We had production assistance today from Jerome Campbell. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. This episode was engineered by Kevin Barassa and Chelsea Daniel. The theme song was composed by Woolly Music. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are our staff editorial consultants. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Dynasty on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com slash dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. Thanks so much for listening. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.